But uh, my name's Nick, if I haven't met you, lead pastor here. Um, and I'm going to be getting us into God's word uh, straight away. It looks like, yeah, we got to dive right in. So hopefully, uh, so far, preparation for Christmas and all that's going well for you guys. Who Who is still buying gifts? I mean, thank God for Amazon. I do appreciate that you buy gifts from your from your living room couch, you know, and then late night. Uh, but uh, anyways, I hope it all goes well for you and you guys aren't too stressed and you're able to keep your hearts on, on, on the Lord and the reason why we're celebrating. I think these guys here are bringing out Bibles if you need them. Uh, that's our Christmas gift to you. You're, you're welcome. Uh, but Luke 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we've been in Luke's gospel for a while, obviously, and uh, we're going to continue on. Next week, I am going to pause I think it's the 300-year anniversary of the hymn, Joy to the World. Um, I was going to take the, that phrase, prepare him room, from that song and um, reflect on it with you guys. Uh, but for this morning, let's get into Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. So in the Bible, you've got the Old Testament, and the second half is the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third book in the New Testament, chapter 18. Let me read verses 15 to 17. We'll pray and then I'll, uh, I'll get going. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. Let's pray. God, the thing that we love about you is that you are at once compassionate, soft, Merciful, kind, warm, tender, welcoming, and rigid, <laughs> holy, righteous, saying it like it is, telling us what we truly need to hear. You are not only love incarnate, you are truth. And so this morning we see both. Already in our text, we see how much you want to welcome, how tender your heart is for the least and the lowest. And yet we also see uh, the, 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 the hardness and the, the sharpness of your words as you say, listen, we have to become like kids. We got to get low if we're going to get into the kingdom. We got to be broken down and lose our pride and be humbled if we're going to truly Receive salvation and come to know you. And so, Lord, this morning I'm praying for that twofold work to be done in this place. I'm praying that there may be people who are just broken down and they need to feel and hear your welcome. They need to experience your love and your tenderness coming for them, the marginalized, the outsider, the oppressed. And then there are others of us who need to be brought down. We need to be broken. We think we're pretty awesome. We think we've got it together. And you're trying to get our attention. Because you want us in the kingdom. And so, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come in this place and you would do your work. I pray that you'd speak through me. I pray you'd speak through your word. I pray that our time together would prove fruitful, that your word would not go out in vain. But it would accomplish that for which you send it. To your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so there is something in us, I think, and I think you can usually see it even at a very little young age. Uh, there, there's, there's something in us that likes to kind of get things done ourselves. 
We like the, the self-sufficient thing, the, the autonomous thing, the independent thing. We, we, we don't want the handouts. We don't want the help. I got it. Thank you. I could figure this out. There's something humbling, something kind of embarrassing, humiliating about opening up that hand or making that request and saying, please, can somebody help me here? We, we tend to, no, no, no. I got this. I'm going to figure it out. Maybe last ditch resort. I'll ask for somebody. I'll send up a flare. But until it comes to that point, I got this. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trucking along. And I think it's especially the air we breathe here in America where, you know, our nation was built kind of with that bootstrap mentality. We're going to pull ourselves up. You're not going to stand on our backs. We're going to shrug you off. We've got this thing. We're the self-made men and women in this country. That's the idea. And if it, if it is anywhere in this country, it'd be especially in the West, right? We, we move out here, pioneers. We're going to, we're going to find our way. This is what we're about. This is kind of the ethos that we have, this autonomy, independence, self-sufficiency. Well, such a notion simply will not stand as far as God is concerned and his kingdom. And Jesus has been for week after week, text after text, just kind of chipping away at this idea in us, chipping away at this mentality. And this morning, it's as if he just finally brings it to, if you ever played Mortal Kombat as a kid, I don't, I didn't really play, but I remember there was the, there was always the end where it was the knockout punch and the guy's like doing this and you go, you do a little thing, bam, this is like the knockout punch in my mind as we come to this text here. He's just saying, all right, let's put that to death. The, the idea in the heart of fallen man that they could be autonomous, self-sufficient, independent and all this. Listen, if you want to go that route, it may get you very far in the kingdoms of this world, but it will not get you anywhere. In fact, it will keep you from the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is just going for it because he loves us. Breaking us down so that he can build us back up the right way. Now, I suppose you could say then that there is a lot on the line in these three verses or so. Your eternity hangs on what you're going to make of these words. And Jesus is essentially saying here, this is what will determine whether you end up within the gates of the kingdom or shut out by them. Right here. Now, before I outline my plan for this morning, I at least wanted to catch us up to speed with uh, how this connects with what we looked at actually last week, if you were here. Because one of the disadvantages of reading along, you know, uh, biblically the way that we are kind of expositionally verse by verse is, uh, as much as I love it, you can kind of get disconnected from what's come before and what's come before may actually prove very illuminating to where you currently are. And so uh, I wanted to, for a moment, just show you how I think this connects with what we looked at last time. And then we'll dive into our text in earnest. But last week we looked at verses 9 through 14. There was this parable. And I'm going to say that I think verses 15 to 17 that we have in front of us this morning basically give us a tangible, physical, literal form of what in the verses last week were put in a parable form. Last week, uh, Jesus uh, introduces us in this parable to two men. If you recall, one of them was this kind of hyper-religious Pharisee. He's kind of standing at the front of the temple. And as he's, quote unquote, praying, uh, though I kind of mentioned it, it's almost like he's kind of worshiping himself in these moments. As he's praying, he's just kind of listing off all that he thinks commends himself to God, all that he's not done, all that he has done. Uh, he's, he can just see the, the stars, you know, lined up, you know, you know oh, here's another little star, or the, the stickers or the cookies or the points or the money or whatever your little rewards. He just thinks I got it all. I'm winning here. He's just listing off his resume to uh, the father as if God would be impressed. And then we're introduced to this sin-stained tax collector standing not in the front of the temple complex, but way off in the back, kind of hiding out against the wall. He's afraid if he gets too close, God's just going to strike him dead. 
It doesn't belong there. And he's, he's beating his chest and his face is to the dust. And he can't even look up, but he's just crying out for mercy. For God to make atonement. For God to forgive him. And then you remember, perhaps the punchline of it all came in verse 14 when Jesus says, Who's the one who's actually right with God? Who's the one who goes home justified? Anyone there would say, oh, certainly it was the first. But he says, no, 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 it was the latter. He's the one who goes home to his house, goes down to his house justified rather than the other. It's a shocking turnaround. Because here you have a guy with a massive resume and here you have a guy with no resume to speak of. The only thing he could list off are, 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 are that, that seemingly endless list of his failures and sins. And God says, yes, that's the guy. That's the guy who's starting to get it. That's the guy who, who's on his way into the kingdom. That's the guy who goes home justified right with God. And that's the point. It's the humble. It's the lowly. It's the one who know they need God and his mercy that are primed to receive it. Just holding out a beggar's hand. God is happy to fill. Now, this is what I think is put before us quite literally with these infants in our text. I mean, you caught this perhaps, hopefully. These infants are being brought to Jesus for blessing, whatever. And, 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 and he's saying, listen, if you want to get into the kingdom, disciples, this is how it's done. Become like one of these little babies. And I'm saying, what's that? But just a, a, a literal, tangible picture of what he just was talking about in the parable. Because what does a baby have to commend itself? Nothing. It offers nothing but its own need. That's all it can bring to the table. I need. Just ask the new moms in our congregation. <laughs> Will you stop needing me, please? I want to sleep. Whatever it is. Need. That's all they got. That's all they got. And Jesus says, that's how you get the kingdom. That's how you get justified. That's how you get the kingdom. We're going to flesh that out further now. Two things that uh, I want to look at as we get into the text um, for this morning. First, Jesus dignifies what we devalue. That's verses 15 and 16. And then verse 17, second thing, Jesus devalues. What we dignify. This is a different way of looking at, in some ways, what we saw last time. It's the reversal of the kingdom of God. It's the surprising inversion. We're going to reflect on that together again this morning. So first, Jesus dignifies what we devalue. Look at verses 15 and 16 again real quick with me. Now, they were bringing even infants to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, real quick background. Um, if we're going to understand kind of the, the, the profundity, the significance of what's happening here, uh, we are going to have to step back into kind of the ancient world, the time when Jesus was around and, and, and get a get a sense of what they thought about kids. OK, and I'm not I'm just going to have a scholar take us by the hand and lead us into that world. Uh, I'm not qualified for that. Let me just read this. To you, so you can hear. Here's how people in Jesus' day around the culture and that would have thought about kids in general. He says this The modern West generally regards the qualities of childlikeness, uh, things like innocence, trustfulness, humility, as inherently praiseworthy, and hence tenderness to children as, as virtuous. The ancient world did not regard children likewise. In Judaism, women and children derived their position in society primarily in relation to adult males. Sons were, of course, regarded as blessings from God, but largely because they ensured the continuance of the family for another generation. 
In general, childhood was an unavoidable and uncelebrated interim until the young were mature enough to bear children and contribute to the workforce. One will search ancient literature in vain for sympathy toward the young comparable to that shown them by Jesus. Amazing. You let that sink in. But so we kind of have this modern notion, uh, perhaps even I remember in my studies when in um, as an English major, I remember reading some of the romantics and uh, Wordsworth and things and talking about kids and how, you know, there's there's this sort of romantic, idealistic version that's brought out during that period looking at kids. It wasn't so. It wasn't so in Jesus's day. There was nothing idealistic, nothing romantic about it. Uh, kids were, were, were people with no status, <laughs> with nothing to offer. Uh, they were essentially mouths that you needed to feed and burdens that you needed to bear until hopefully they could start to contribute. Until hopefully they could start to be put to work and do something uh, meaningful, do something productive, do something helpful. Now, trying to bridge the context towards us, we are in the modern West. Uh, and he refers to it, the commentator does there at the beginning, that you know, we're prone to maybe value. And you see some of that in the way that we try to protect our kids, the way that we want to educate them well, the way that we, uh, you know, we, we, we try to uh, throw good birthday parties for them, whatever maybe. Sometimes you even see we go overboard and we can spoil our kids. There's talk of that happening in the you know, upcoming generations of kids. I hear teachers and things, well, man, what's going on with the kids these days? Just talking back, there's no authority, whatever it is. It's because we kind of, we do, we value, and we can sometimes overvalue, right? But I do think if we're honest, even in our culture and even in our own hearts today, we're still prone to see them as something of a nuisance as well. It's kind of two narratives running side by side. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect where it's hard, and we know that. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever been at a restaurant, I have, where we bring kids in or something and the kid is acting up and all the eyes start rolling all around you and you're feeling uncomfortable, like, we got to get out of here. They're going to start pulling out weapons. You know, Levi's, Levi's not doing well and, you know, no one else is now either. It can be hard. And I've mentioned, I mean, just give you a few examples of how our culture maybe even still sees kids just kind of as a bother. Um, you know, one of the things I, I think I've mentioned before Statistically speaking, people are starting to talk about the fact that millennials aren't having kids, that this whole generation is starting to get older, come to childbearing years. They're doing this. And yet they're not starting families. They're not having kids. And if they are, you know, getting married, they're not interested, at least in the next, you know, 10 years. We're going to put that off, keep putting that off. People are starting to get a little concerned about what that means for our country and all of that. But one of the things that you come to realize is, well, it's just hard. It's hard to have a kid. It's hard to have a kid. It's hard. I, I, I have other plans. I have other ideas. I, I want to travel. I want to, you know, double income sounds nice, especially in the barrier. If I have, if she's got to stay at home or I got to say whatever. That's not going to be good. So we start to kind of bow out because it's hard. It's hard. And, and I'm going to take us a little deeper into kind of the the dark underbelly of some of this. I mean, I think that this is, uh, in many ways, we can see the kind of devaluing of, of kids in our day, e even in the logic that we see with regard to abortion in our culture. I mean, you could dress up the rhetoric surrounding this however you want. You can call it women's reproductive rights if you want. But at bottom, it is, it is this. It is, I, I don't want a kid. Whether it's a good reason, like, I don't think I could provide for the kid. I'm not ready for the kid. I'm not qualified to have a kid. Or it's something more selfish, like, I just want to be unchained and young for a while. I don't want a baby. A ball and chain keeping me tied to the house when I'm, you know, whatever. It's the sort of thing underneath it is I, they're just a nuisance. They're just a bother. So even in the modern West, we know something about this. We do. This devaluing of children and things. But it was especially poignant in Jesus's day, which is why the disciples respond the way that they do. I wonder if you noticed it there in verse 15. When they see these parents bringing their kids to Jesus, they what? They rebuked them. 
I mean, they just, they just gave them an earful. <laughs> How could you? What are you doing? Step back. This is the king. Bring your little kids, your little snotty nose, poopy diaper kid. I don't even know if they had diapers. And that. Kid, get them, out, get them out of here. Now, my guess is um, this was a well-intentioned rebuke. My guess is they thought Jesus was going to be like, thank you, man. Those kids were getting all up in my grill. I wanted them out of here. Thank you. We got busier and more important things to do. And they're like, thinking that this was, this was a good thing. It was a well-intentioned rebuke, however misinformed. Something along the lines, perhaps, of what we see with Peter in Matthew 16. I don't know if you remember this. When Jesus tells him, hey, listen, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And Peter just goes. He steps back, again, thinking he's faithful. He goes, huh. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. No way. Not on my watch. King of kings, Messiah, he doesn't die. Nuh-uh, he reigns. Don't say that. Rebukes Jesus himself, well-intentioned, just 180 degrees off the mark. Same thing here, I think. Perhaps they think that the king doesn't have time for such simple, mundane things like playing with kids. He's too important. Too much going on. Better things to do. I mean, the crazy thing is if Jesus were here this morning, while perhaps there is a room full of folks that would be interested in getting on this stage, you wonder where Jesus would be? He'd be in the back with the kids. Isn't that amazing? Nobody's seeing him. Nobody's congratulating him. Nobody's thanking him. But there he is. Jesus, what we'll see, flips the rebuke back onto them, as it were. He's going to here dignify what we tend to devalue. And that's the reason for the, the heading the way that it is. We're going to watch Jesus dignify what we so often devalue. And you can blow that out beyond just kids to anything else you're prone to overlook and call foolish or outside or marginal. Jesus is moving in with care. Dignifies what we devalue. In Mark's account of the story, I thought it was important enough to bring out. We're told that when Jesus saw how the disciples were responding here, he was not just a little frustrated, not just a, he was indignant, is the word. He was furious. Now, I love this because we catch a little bit here what I would call maybe the ferocity of his mercy. The indignation of his compassion, the fire of his love. It's amazing because he, he is like the fact that he would be indignant. I mean, think about this with me. When's the last time you've been indignant? What do you typically get? I mean, you know, we don't use the word perhaps anymore. To me, it seems like a step above like frustrated or angry. Like you're indignant. You've got something, something burning in there. When's the last time you're, you're burning with, with something angry? It, isn't it usually we get indignant when it's us who's been poorly treated? Like the stuff that keeps you up at night, is it really like, oh, just a concern for the, the people over there and their injustice? I wish. I hope so. That'd be awesome. But so often what it is is, how could they say that to me? How could they do that to me? That ain't right. How am I going to get them back? What am I going to do? Am I going to cold shoulder it and go passive aggressive? Am I going to go just active aggressive and come after him with the fist? What am I going to do? That's usually what makes us get indignant, at least me. I mean, I'll just own that. But what makes Jesus indignant? What gets him all hot under the collar? It's amazing. It's not when we devalue him per se, but when we devalue others. Now, I know the two are connected. I don't have time to do all that theology, but... When we devalue others, when, when we overlook the oppressed, the marginalized, when we show little concern for, for justice and equity. No interest in hearing them. Well, who cares? Showing partiality to the rich and neglecting the poor. These are the sorts of things that make Jesus indignant when we stand in the way of grace rather than for the advance of it. When we hinder those whom he loves deeply from coming to him as the disciples do here. In many ways, this 
indignation comes out in what we saw just a chapter earlier, Luke 17, 2. I'll just read it to you when Jesus says this. It would be better for one if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You know what that is? That's called the ferocity of his mercy, the indignation of his compassion, the fire of his love. You don't want to stand in the way of his grace. That's what he's saying. Don't get in the way. I want to show mercy. You're building up all these barriers. I'm going to break them down and you're going to get caught in the torrent with it. Because I'm coming in love. Don't tell them I'm not. Don't hinder them from coming to me. Don't rebuke Parents for bringing them to me. This is right where they need to be. It's right where we need to be. If you want to know what Jesus truly feels about those helpless and devalued and marginalized as children in his day were, all you need to do is look at how he treats them here. And I'm going to bring out two things for you to observe. First, thing I'd bring out is there in verse 16 that he calls them to him. Now, um, there is something in, in the Greek grammar that is decisive here that you won't see in the English. He's actually talking to the infants. He is calling. Who's the them? Jesus called them to him. Who's the them? You might say, oh, it it could be the disciples. He's calling them over to give them a talking to. You might say, oh, he's calling the parents. That would make sense. He's calling them back. No, get them back over here. But if you've ever taken Spanish, if I recall, Spanish has um, what they call grammatical gender, where there's masculine words and feminine words and these things. And uh, in this case, it's clear the, 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 the grammatical gender in the Greek, which is kind of somewhat similar, has similar concepts, um, points to the reality that he is actually talking to these kids. And I just thought that's amazing. The them here that he is calling to himself is, is these, little, these little ones. And what's awesome about this is he just speaks right to the children themselves. He dignifies what we devalue. Have you ever been a part of a conversation where people just kind of talk around you or talk over you or even talk down to you? If you've been around kids and stuff, and and, and as parents, I could sadly say, I certainly do this where it's like, okay, we kind of, you know, the kids are here, but we're trying to talk with one another and they may interject their opinion, but they're just a kid. You know, we don't, okay, your opinion doesn't mean all that much to us. If we're honest, sometimes we just kind of, and you've been in conversations where you felt on the end of that, like, oh, I guess I'm here, but I'm not really here. And what's amazing about Jesus is there's no talking down. There's no talking over. There's talking directly to the one that everyone, the ones that everyone else around are kind of devaluing. Say, what's the point of this? He goes, no, no, no. I'm talking to the kids. Come here. Come here. It's an amazing thought, and it's particularly relevant for us. I mean, some of you may feel like Jesus would have no business talking to you. He wouldn't humble himself to engage with you. Maybe you've had leaders or church people even that have treated you that way. But here is Christ and here is his way. Talking directly to you. Not ashamed to be associated with you. Dignifying what other people may have devalued. Secondly, so we see, first of all, that Jesus not, not, uh, not only talks to these children and calls them to himself. We also see here that he touches them. This is verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Now, I wanted to say a word about this. And before I can really get to the the deeper meaning of it, you kind of have to do some work with the baggage that's now associated with this idea, right? In our sexualized, perverted society... Uh, now we hear the idea of, of, of Jesus touching children, perhaps, and immediately what goes off is red flags. Oh, touching kids. Something doesn't seem right here. This seems creepy. This seems wrong. Jesus is one of those, you know, weirdos you got to keep your kids away from. But there actually couldn't be anything more right about this touch. 
not the touch of exploitation here. It's not the touch of abuse or oppression. Not the touch of pedophilia. But the touch of love, acceptance, welcome, and blessing. I mean, have no doubt there is still a scandalous aspect to this touch, but it's not the scandal that we would put on it. It's scandalous because the King of Kings, like Luke was saying, who came down from heaven, left glory, came down from heaven. The King of Kings, God himself in the flesh is hanging out with the lowest and the least. That's the scandal in this touch. What is he doing here? Valuing the least and the lowest is crazy. And we've seen him put this touch to good use all throughout the gospel, right? I'll give you a few examples. In Luke 5.13, if you recall, he stretches his hand out to touch the leprous man, the one that no one, you had to scream out, unclean, don't come near. Jesus reaches his hand out and touches. And in that heals. Or in Luke 7.14, he comes up in the midst of a funeral procession and touches the, 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 I think it's called a beer. I'm not talking about a beer, like some guy's got a beer here. But it's, it's basically like a plank that you would lay a, a corpse on as he took it to burial. And he touches that plank, calls to the dead child, and the child sits up. Such a thing would have made you unclean and would have, would have been wrong to do. And yet Jesus' touch scandalizes for sure. But in the other direction, cleanness starts to flow out from him. What in the world just happened? Or we'll see later in Luke twenty two fifty one when Peter, thinking again he's going to protect the king from this, this, this horrible fate as people are coming to him there in Gethsemane and are going to lock him up, ball and chain, and, and drag him away. Peter lops off a, you know, one of the guy's ears with a sword, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 and restores that ear, the ear even of his would-be enemy, the one who came to time, restores that ear with a touch. With a touch. So there's something to this idea of Jesus' touch. It pictures just how close he is willing to get to the unclean, the sinful, the oppressed, the marginalized. And in fact, um, with Christmas upon us, I, I thought it especially appropriate to point out perhaps that Jesus will do more than merely touch humanity. Right? He's going to do more than merely touch humanity in our place of need. In fact, he's going to take it all on himself. The touch that we see throughout the Gospels is, is really a picture of what he's going to do at the cross, where he's come in the flesh, taken it all on himself, not just touched at it and left, taken it all on, and he's going to walk Calvary's road and, and, and die for our ultimate healing. To show uh, beyond a measure of doubt that, that, that God values he, he dignifies, he loves those made in his image who have wandered off and made a mess of it in their sin. He, he loves you. Yes, he's going to come with truth. Yes, he's still going to call you out for your sin. But man, his arms are open and he's ready to do the work. He loves you. The clearest indication that Jesus values little children is the fact that he himself became one. Isn't that amazing thought? He didn't just call to, he came towards, he didn't just touch, he took on. He goes to the cross and he saves. Now, two real quick points of application before I get to the, the second heading. And forgive me, I've still got that lingering thing in my voice I had going last week. Um, two quick points of application. One, I... I I realize that some may, in fact, in this room, feel like the outsider and feel like the devalued and the marginalized, the one that people talk over, the people, one that people um, um, ignore. And sometimes even the disciples, God's people, do that to you. And I just want to introduce you through this text to Jesus as he really is. Am I going to mess up? Am I going to misrepresent him like these disciples do sometimes? Yeah. 
Have other leaders, have other Christians misrepresented him? Yeah. But here is Jesus as he really is. You see, he's going to break down every barrier that people may set up, socially or otherwise. We try to establish these hierarchies and dividing lines and all these things. And Jesus breaks through. He will not let this religion that bears his name become a religion of hierarchy and structure and law and rule. Ultimately, fundamentally, it is a religion of grace. It is a religion of God coming after the least and the lowest. Without concern for his image, without concern for himself. Great love for you. So the call to you is to come. To know that there is acceptance in Christ. Second, though, what we see, I realize there are others of us who maybe are in the church and and we are feeling on the inside and maybe we give a good uh, <clears throat> we, we, we give a good little you know speech on how we should love the oppressed and all this stuff. And we should go out there like that, like Jesus does here. But but maybe we really aren't doing it. The question is, uh, are we actually like Jesus here? If this is what Jesus wants the church to be like, is that what we are in fact like? We give good lip service to the idea of the orphan and the widow, and it sounds nice, but in reality, we hang out with our folks and those folks that have a good give and take. And I mean, I'm right there with you convicted in some of this. So don't, don't think I'm something separate up here. All I know is this, uh, wherever Christianity is kind of truly taken root, there's this inertia in the very heart of it that moves the people towards the marginalized, towards the outsider, towards the people that can't speak up for themselves. There's just this inertia built within the God. I mean, that's what it means to believe in the God of Christmas. He's moving towards the darkness. You get that deep in your soul and God's love for you. It's going to move you towards the darkness too. And not so that you can play around with it. but So you can bring light and life. And so historically, it's really interesting. I'm just giving you an example, kind of riffing on how the, the, the culture around um, in Jesus's day would devalue kids. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, they do this thing called exposure, child exposure. Where, hey, if we have too many or if it's not, a, it's not a boy or it's not whatever, we are going to, we don't want it. We're just simply let, let, drop that kid off, you know, at the trash heap down the street, whatever. Just throw it out onto the, the lawn or whatever. Dogs would come and eat it. Some people may drive by and pick it up, pick your child up and raise it for prostitution or slavery. You want to know how Christians responded to this? What's going on? I mean, it's perfectly legal and fine. Didn't consider them really even a person at that point, unless the dad wanted them. And they went through a religious ceremony. Christians look at this and they go, no way. And so they would start to take up the kids and, and give them a home or, or the hospitals that Christians were starting to develop. They'd put a... Um, a certain subsection within there, those hospitals for these, what they called foundlings, these, these kids that were just picked up off the sides of the road. And later on, they developed uh, orphanages and things. For this is what Christians do. When the gospel gets a hold of us, you don't just sit around on your hands. When there's injustice and there's need, we move towards that need. In fact, um, reading about this, uh, one scholar writes that Christians gained such a reputation for their care of exposed infants that churches became the established site for abandoning infants. We'll take what you don't want. We will dignify what you devalue. Drop them off. For us now, it may look like getting involved in things like Teen Challenge which works with the addicted people that usually just mean they're too difficult. Let's keep them somewhere else. I don't want to see them. Let's cut them off, whatever it is. You move towards those broken places and you bring healing with the gospel. And that sounds poetic and nice. There's a lot of blood involved <laughs> and sweat and tears. 
Or you may get involved with something like Real Options, which cares for the unborn. Or you may get involved with something like Foster the Bay, which um, cares for orphans right here in the Bay Area. In fact, it was awesome. I ran into the director of Foster the Bay, Philip Pattison, this past week, and I was talking with him. And it was so cool to hear him share because one of the things he says, man, you know what? Watching kind of God open doors or watching God kind of do various things and answer some of our prayers. He just said, it's so clear that this is so close. This, this, this caring for orphans thing is so close, so dear to his heart. Because he's just so active in it. He's just so moving uh, along the line just to make, make it go. He's like, it's amazing. He's like, the one thing that I tra- took from it is, man, God, you really care about this. And he does. So the question is, is, do we? And are we going? Would we be with the disciples, you know, laying out our rebuke for why these or that shouldn't be a part of this? Or are we with Jesus saying, no, no, no. Let me talk directly to him. Get in here. I don't care what they say. I don't care if they bear my name or not. They don't have my heart. They missed it. Secondly, then, we see now Jesus devalues what we dignify. So he dignifies what we devalue. Then just to flip that another way, he, he, he devalues what we dignify. He devalues what we dignify. This comes out in particular there in verse 17 when he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I mean, that's going to strike at our pride, Right? That's going to strike at the things that we value. But hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying we must not only be concerned for these little ones, we actually must become like them in some way. He's saying that not only should we stop hindering them from coming to Jesus, we actually should start learning from them how to come to Jesus. What a flip. I mean, what a rebuke. These guys are saying these kids aren't important enough. For Jesus, my king, to be dealing with them. And he goes, actually, you know what? You should be learning from them. Let's all sit down and learn from them right now. That's how important they are. This is really why I opened the way that I did with this idea of autonomy and self-sufficiency. Because that's the stuff we value. That's what we dignify. That's what we appreciate, the, the self-made thing, the, the muscle and the might and the, you know, the sweat. And I pulled myself up and I could do it. And we value that not just in the world, but in the realm of the church as well. The guys who are extra good at fasting and, and, and know all the Bible verses and all this, and they give more money. We can, we can have the same mentality in the church as well. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to flex. But what we see is Jesus is saying is, I don't care about the flexed arm. I care about the open hand. You got to learn from these kids. He, he said, I'm not impressed. Those are your muscles. Are you kidding me? You want to see mine? <laughs> right? Like I speak and the universe comes into being. You think I'm impressed with how much you gave or what you did or what your company is or how many people are doing what it's. I'm not. You want to know what impresses me? The person who finally gets how great I am, how, how bankrupt they are, opens up their hand and says, please help. That's what causes me to marvel. That's what moves my heart. He devalues what we dignify. Now, there are two questions that I want to ask uh, of this verse 17 here. What does it mean, first of all? And then second of all, how does it happen? What does it mean to become like a kid? To be like one of these infants, these little kids here. What does that mean? What is he saying with that? And then secondly, how how do we do it? And in case you're worried, that's all I'm going to do with the rest of our time. So let's take question number one for a moment. What? Does it mean? I mean, I, he's saying this is how you get in the kingdom. My eternity hangs on this. I better know what he means. I want you to know what he means. I think his phrase here, the statement here, the idea here cuts really in two directions. On the one hand, it cuts towards this idea of the insufficiency of my own ability and energy and effort. This one hurts a little bit. This cut hurts a little bit. Let's just be real. It it, it cuts towards this idea that I can't do it. 
I can't get right with God. The, the picture of a child is one of, of, of helplessness, one of utter need. Right? We talk about it, like you, you bring nothing to commend yourself. There's nothing there. There is something that, that hurts in our recognition of that and that reality. As Jesus says, you've got to become like this. We go, wait a minute. I'm not a baby. Like, think about it. When somebody on the playground called, when you're in elementary school, called you, what are you, a baby? How did that make you feel? I'm going to punch you out. I'll show you who's the baby now. Come on. You know, that, right? That's how we respond. Jesus is here saying, yeah, you've got to become a baby. He's saying, you're not going to be able to get into the kingdom. I'm sorry to break it to you. Your own effort, your own righteousness, it's not going to happen. You don't enter by earning it. You enter by receiving it. Did you catch that? Jesus says it's pretty interesting. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like this child will not enter it. How do you enter it? You receive it. That's it. You freely let him give it to you. You take the handout. <laughs> you say, I really need it. It's awesome because Jesus, um, you think of all the different ways he could have spun this. And the ways we might have spun it or think that he might, you know, what he might want to say. He doesn't say, listen, if you want the kingdom, you got to become like adults. Like, I'm sick. I'm sick of covering for you. It's time you start acting your age. You get your stuff together. Show me your, your balance checkbook. You start getting some income, some cash flow, whatever. You know, you start standing on your own two feet. Stop crying out to me all the time. And then maybe I'll let you in. You become an adult. And say that. He doesn't even say, hey, listen, become like an adolescent or become like a teenager. Let's just go 50-50 here. Let's do some chores around the house. Let's get some allowance. Let's start, you know, let's start contributing a little bit. Let's compromise here. And then I'll let you know. He doesn't say that either. He said, if you want into the kingdom, you get down in, 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 on the floor with the baby. And you just cry. Because that's the true state of your need, whether you see it or not. And in fact, the, the less you see it, the more problematic it is, the more real it is. It's not a sign of your maturity to think you can handle it. It's actually a sign of how far off from maturity you truly are. But that's just one direction that this verse cuts. Um, there's another thing that Jesus means by it. And I think this is, is far more encouraging because while on the one hand, Jesus is saying we cannot earn the kingdom in our own strength. He is, on the other hand, expressing just how happy he is to freely give it. I mean, yes, it hurts to say, whoa, OK, I'm like a baby who just needs to open my hand. But on the other hand, he's saying, listen, I, my lap is, is wide open for these kids. My arms are wide open for these kids. I, I, I love to give. I'll give you everything, more than you can imagine. So not only does it point to our own insufficiency to ever get right with God or get into the kingdom on our own merit, it actually also points to his all-sufficiency and his, his, his happiness, his delight in giving us the kingdom. That's what he says. I've read that verse before. But you know, Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So that's really the gold-plated truth in all of this. Yes, it hurts to say I can't. But what an amazing thing to come into the realization that he can. And he already has. It's essentially the same thing I was talking about last week with the idea that the law, not meant to be a mountain by which we climb up to God, but a muzzle by which our mouths are silent so that we finally go, wow, I need help from outside. It readies us to be justified, not in our own strength, not in our own righteousness, but on the basis of Christ. Nothing, I love this hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's where the tax collector was last week's parable. 
That's where the baby is. If you don't feed me, if you don't care for me, I am dead. If you expose me, the ant, I do, they don't just walk off. I'm fine, dad, I'll take care of myself. They get eaten. They die. If you don't wash me, if you don't save me, it's over. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I go. That's the essential meaning. Now, how do we get there? How do you get, how, how, if that's what it means to become like a child and receive the kingdom, how do we get there? How does Jesus get us there? What, what does it look like? What does it, what does it take? I got three things and then we'll, we'll, we'll be done. It seems to me it often begins first with hardship and trial. So. Because we are so prone to think that we're awesome, to think that we've got it, to think that we can figure it out. Usually the initial starting point to this whole process of becoming like a child is, is, is God knocks me off my horse. Maybe many, many times till I finally go, whoa, that's my story of conversion. It's probably yours. Certainly it was Paul's. I don't know if you remember the story, but Paul is thinking he is doing God's work. And God literally, Jesus literally knocks him off of his horse. Just, no, you're going the absolute wrong way. He blinds him in order to help him see. And when it kind of is all said and done, what comes out of it is Paul just says, listen, I thought I was so righteous and so great. And now I realize my righteousness is trash and all I need is Christ. I need his death. I need his life. I need his resurrection. I need his righteousness to commend me to God or I'm not getting in. In other words, he was made like an infant. And he got it. And it was suffering and trial that brought that out. The tendency, as I've been saying, is for us to kind of look in. Try to keep going. Keep trying. Let's try another thing. I'm not going to I'm not going to raise the white flag. I'm not going to surrender. We're going to look in, not up and out to God somewhere. No, I don't need that. I can figure it out. I saw an example of this on a magazine rack in um, Target as I was buying some Christmas gifts or something. Taylor Swift was on the cover of it, and the big, bold letters, the statement on there was, the, the year I found true joy. And then subtitle, little, little blurb, I've, lear- I've leaned into who I really am. The message is clear. If you want to find true joy, you lean into who you truly are. You lean in. You come in and you love yourself. Whatever. I used to do a thing called back before I was a Christian called self-realization fellowship. How scary is that? You lean in and you realize yourself and you start building there. And that sounds good when you're a pop star and things are going well. That's great. But the bottom line is there will come a time. If not now, then in the end. When you realize how insufficient all of that is and God in his mercy, a lot of times brings trials and suffering, just knock us. Whoa, leaning in is not going to help. It's not going to work anymore. I'm looking out. I'm extending the hand out. The beggar's hand is open. Help. I mean, my conversion prayer was it's clear. God, I'm not in control. If you are there. Help. He was on me. I didn't even know half of what I was doing. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. Humbled me to the dirt. He's probably doing it with some of you right now. And this is what he's after. Second thing I'd say is it always requires the regenerating work of the spirit. It always requires the regenerating work of the spirit. So suffering and trial is not enough. If left to ourselves, we would just continue. We would hold on to our pride to the end. Just fall on our sword out on the battlefield. You're not going to get me. We need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is just a fancy theological word that refers to what you're probably more familiar with, the idea of being born again. Think about it with me. What's the idea of being born again, but the same, just different language for the same reality of becoming a kid? Becoming a baby. That's what it is. And Jesus talks about this reality in John 3 with Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's talking about kids and kingdom again. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So unless I become like a kid, I can't see, I can't enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, how do I become like a kid? He says, the Spirit. Regeneration. Suffering and trial, not enough. We need the Spirit of God to convict and soften and awaken and cause us to be born again. Lead us to the Son. You're just not going to go there. The Spirit of God enables us to do what in our flesh we would never do. Namely, cry out like a little baby for help. That's why Paul in two places says, what is the Spirit going to do when it gets a hold of your life? What's the first thing? It's going to cause you to cry out, what? Abba, Father. In other words, the Spirit, as you're born again, creates in you this desire, like a baby, to cry out to your dad for help. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. That's how a person becomes like a child. Suffering a trial alerts you to how far you are off from the mark, and then the Spirit is there to convict, awaken, move you to that place of crying out. Help. Finally, third thing I'd say is it ultimately leads to greater dependence upon Jesus. So this, 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 how do we, how do we, how does this work? How do we become like a kid and things? Well, first we see that, that we, it usually involves trials and suffering. Then we see that it, it always requires work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration. And then one last note I wanted to make is that it ultimately leads to greater dependence upon Jesus. And I get that this doesn't necessarily flow with what I'm saying, but here's what I want to catch, catch you in here for just a moment. You might think, okay, we start, I'm getting it now, I start the Christian life as a baby. And you might still fall into the same logic that now I guess I'm supposed to move out from the cross and from reliance on God to more independence. And that's not how the Christian life works. There's this inverse maturation process of the children of God. That I want to point out to you. And that's just a fancy way of saying you do not. You do not. As you grow mature as a Christian, you do not grow more and more dependent or independent. You grow more and more dependent. You actually grow in terms of the natural realm. We would say, dude, if you're like, you know, 35 and you're still living in your parents garage playing, you know, uh, video games because you don't want to face reality. There's something wrong with the development there. Right. You should be independent. In the natural realm, okay, that sounds right. But in the spiritual realm, if you're unwilling to rely on God, that, and you're trying to do things in your own strength, that's not showing, that's not a mark of your maturity. That's actually a mark. That's actually exposing your own immaturity. That's not something to be encouraged. That's something that still needs to be put to death in you. The Christian, one example, to show you that this is what we're called to, the Christian is called to what? Pray unceasingly. So in other words, the Abba Father thing, that just gets you started. That that's not the beginning and the end of this. It's supposed to become ever increasingly, always and forever, your prayer. You are always in dialogue with the one that you need more than you know. That's the mark of maturity. Every time you're not praying without ceasing, you want to know what's happening? You're falling back into the autonomous mindset. I got this. Let me figure it out. And then maybe when it finally doesn't work, you go, whoops, I should have prayed. He's working on us. He's teaching us. And through trial and things, he's bringing us in. He's helping us still to learn more and more what it looks like to just grow into him, press into him, not out from him. So it's a deeper, it's a greater dependence. That's where this thing goes. You just become more and more like a child. And that's actually how you become a spiritual adult. So I don't know where you are in all of this. Maybe God is using trial to get your attention. Maybe you've been leaning in on yourself and he's trying to get you to lean out more to him. All I know is, man, this way over here, the autonomous, self-sufficient thing is going to ultimately lead you to despair. You may get the headlines on the, on the magazine covers that there's joy for a moment. In that route. But it ultimately will let you down. And God is saying, no, no, no. Come into the kingdom over here. He is ready. He is happy to give and welcome. So let's cry out to him now.
together. Let's pray. God, we are, we are babies. We are just little kids. We do not have what it takes, not just to get into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or to get right with you. We don't even have what it takes to keep going in this life. We only think we do. You say that you uphold our breath, that you uphold all things by the word of your power. That every atom, every molecule in my body right now is being held together because you say so. Lord, how foolish of us to walk out from, from, walk away from you as if we've got it. We're nothing, we're nothing. (laughs) We're just like little toddlers trying to tell our parents how to run the world. We have no clue. So God, I pray right now that you would lead us into that posture of prayer. You would lead us into that place of desperation and you would open the gates of the kingdom to people once more. In Jesus' name, amen.